Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is psychoactive drugs. And my guest is the legendary Dennis McKenna. He is the founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute. He is the director and president of the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy. With his brother, Terence McKenna, he is author of or co-author of The Invisible Landscape, Mind, Hallucinogens, and the I Ching. They also co-authored under pen names the book Psilocybin, The Magic Mushroom Grower's Guide. Since Terence's unfortunate death many years ago, I believe it was the year 2000, Dennis has written Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, My Life with Terence McKenna. And more recently, he has edited a two-volume ethnopharmacologic search for psychoactive drugs, which is the record of two conferences held 50 years apart in 1967 and in the year 2017. Dennis is located in British Columbia. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Dennis. It's a pleasure to be with you. Very much a pleasure to be here, Jeffrey. Thank you for asking me. It, it's a special experience for me, having many years ago conducted several interviews with with your brother, Terrence. They're among the most popular interviews we've ever released. But uh, I know you've always been in the background of his story. And as I read over your book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, I can see that many times you were in the foreground. In some ways. I mean, I was in the background by preference. But yes, uh, I mean, Terence had a silver tongue and he was an excellent, you know, conversationalist and deeply steeped in philosophy and, you know, widely read. I'm not nearly as erudite as he is, but uh, and his his things, his talks have enormous longevity. I imagine those talks were like in the late 80s, early 90s that you did with him, and people are still listening to them. I mean, he's he's amazing. He's achieved, you know, he's achieved this strange virtual form of immortality. Uh, his work is all over the, the YouTube, all over the net. He has more more followers on Twitter than I do. I mean, and he's been dead for 22 years. Not bad. <laughs> uh, that's a slight exaggeration. But anyway, he's still very, very timely. And I think in part it's because his, his you know, his, his talks were so out of time. They were so ahead of their time in some ways. And, and so... Yeah, it's it's a high bar, Jeffrey, but we'll do our best here. I am delighted to have this time with you. I I know your recent book, the Ethnopharmacologic um 
view of, of psychoactive drugs uh, was based on a couple of conferences, one back in 1967, one in 2017. And I, I think it's worth mentioning that I had the opportunity to meet you in, in person just a few months ago in 2022 at yet another conference on, on the impact of, of drugs. And that conference uh, was of special interest to me because it related to the idea that uh, the spirit entities that people seem to be in communication with under the influence of DMT in particular might be real. That was a fascinating conference. And when when this topic comes up about these sentient entities, whatever they may be, of course, the you know, immediately the question becomes, are they real? And then the question becomes, what do you mean by real? (laughs) You know, I mean, I I sort of start from the premise that uh, anything you experience is real. You know, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily outside your head or that it's, that it's, you know, I mean, you get into these conversations about, inside and outside and and real and not real uh you know one thing that that psychedelic experiences teach you i think is that these are very fluid concepts you know i mean you take psychedelics and often one of the take-home lessons one of the major ones is that you know everything is connected we are all one you know that kind of thing Interestingly, earlier today, I was just reading my news feed and there was a a talk, uh, there was an article, I think it was in, uh, now I don't remember what it was in, I think it was in like the Futurist or something about sort of the new emerging paradigm in cosmology and this you know, as you know, the, the, the you know, the, the big challenge in physics is to reconcile uh, general relativity and quantum mechanics. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of theories about string theory and all this stuff, which I read about. I do not pretend to understand it all, but there's this new paradigm coming out around quantum entanglement and the idea that there really is no multiplicity of reality. It is all one. It is all one. And everything that we experience is this, this, this fragmentary uh, apprehension of what is actually just one thing, you know, and it's kind of like, this is what the mind does in order to make the universe comprehensible to us, but entirely a construction of, of our minds, you know, which, uh, which, you know, in, in another context, I've, I've been arguing for this for years that, you know, we, we live in this, uh, this, uh, reality hallucination, I like to call it. Now the neuroscientists, they call it the default mode network, but it's the same kind of idea that, you know, we don't live in reality itself. We live in this model of reality that our brains construct in order to make it comprehensible because of, you know, and, and a lot of what that, that, that hallucination is, or that, that construct is it's, it's composed of filters. It's, it's basically defined by what it doesn't allow in, 
you know, and there's neural gating. I mean, the term in neuroscience is neural gating. Not a lot gets through. Enough gets through that we can construct this this reality that we uh, that we inhabit that we call consensus reality. And uh, you know, part of the the the, the fascination and the uh, and probably the the therapeutic. Uh, utility of psychedelics is that they temporarily disable that thing. You know, they they blow it up. They blow up this default mode network. And uh, like a computer system, I think it's very similar to rebooting your computer, you know, because it will fall back together. It, it is, you know, the, the systems tend toward equilibrium. You know, and even though you've blown it up completely and you're in this place where you're not really in these boundaries anymore, but it will come back together. If it doesn't, you know, then you've got a problem. And that that rarely happens. It usually comes back together and it usually works better afterwards. Just like, you know, my Mac gets all messed up and I restart it and suddenly it runs smoothly for a while until it decides not to. And I think that... You know, that ability to sort of disrupt this default mode network is at the root of a lot of the the, the therapeutic uh, uses of psychedelics. That's one reason why the psychedelics can be thought of as a, you know, in a way, a broad spectrum psychotherapeutic. You know, they they have applications to so many different kinds of disorders from anxiety and depression to trauma and addiction and all of these things. But it, it's because it, it opens up an opportunity to sort of restructure your default mode network. And uh, that's, that's the common basis, like a broad spectrum antibiotic. I know from reading your autobiography that that before you even began to take a serious scientific interest in psychedelics, even as a as a high school student, you were widely in, imbibing uh, LSD and and other drugs. Uh, I didn't start out that early. I started out in college, but I can say I took over a hundred uh, instances of, of psychedelic use. And, and I think they were very beneficial for me. But the, the, what I really want to get at here, Dennis, is that in your book, you talk about an important turning point in your life. You refer to it as the experience that took place at La Carrera in, in Colombia. And, and I think it would be very enlightening for our viewers to probe that experience more deeply with you. Right. Well, uh, yeah, the experience, the experiment at La Chorrera is, uh, like, you know, it's part of the Denny and Terrence mythopoetic story. And you went right right to it, Jeffrey. That's the one thing I hate to talk about because for one thing, I've talked about it a lot. And for another thing, it's hard for me to even make any sense of it that this is like 50 years later. In some ways, yeah, we went to uh, La Chirera in 1971. And the reason that we went there 
is because we were both taking psychedelics. Terrence was in Berkeley. I was in Boulder. Uh, but we were exchanging, you know, regular correspondence. They didn't have text or email in those days, of course. But we were, we had this shared fascination with DMT, you know, and we thought that DMT was really an order of magnitude stranger than and more interesting than LSD or other psychedelics. And back in those days, what there basically was was LSD. Occasionally, you could get, uh, you know, mescaline or peyote. DMT was a rare creature, almost a unicorn-level creature at that time. There wasn't much of it. But Terrence was very good at working the Matrix, and he had it. And we had experienced it, and we thought, you know, yeah, this this is like the ultimate metaphysical reality, you know, uh, in some ways, this is just much stranger than LSD or any psychedelic. And we sort of came to it from the standpoint of science fiction in some ways. We were both heavily influenced by science fiction. And uh, we were, you know, so these DMT experiences seem to us like visits to literally another place, another dimension. You know, we framed it in that those terms rather than like participate. They weren't spiritual. We didn't view it that way. They weren't like participating in, in, in ethnomedical traditions or anything like that. We had this idea that it let you penetrate to another place. And, uh, where that was in space or time was was a question. But anyway. I noticed in your book, there was a very brief mention right before the section on the La Chirera experience. You mentioned in passing the idea of being in contact with mantid-like beings in a UFO. And I wonder if there's any more to that. Well, I think that was just one of the tropes that sort of was part of this idea of the encounter that we had. I think, I mean, we, we in this encounter with the mushrooms over, you know, 10 days or so that led up to this experiment, I mean, we had the idea, we even called it the teacher, you know, and I, I think that we thought the teacher was channeling through the mushrooms. It wasn't the mushrooms, it was the teacher. And the teacher, yeah, sort of had this mantid-like character and, and so on. So so that was that was it. Uh, lately, thinking back on our on the conference that Anton uh, organized, I I am reading currently uh, this book called The Falling Sky. Have you read that? No, I haven't. Uh, relevant to the idea of the DMT entities, you know, mm. because, you know, the, the question that we started out with, is this real? Yeah. Well, th this is a, this is written by uh, uh, Bruce Albert, who's an anthropologist, but he's basically translating the words of uh, a Yanomami shaman, mm -hmm. Abi. Kapanua, Kapanawa, I think, and uh, and he and it's it's 
I mean, you talk about the DMT entities. For him, they are totally real, mm-hmm. you know, and not only, and they get to it through the snuff. I mean, the snuff is understood to be the food of these spirits, which he calls the Zapiri. And the shamans form essentially these symbiotic relationships with the Zapiri through the use of this snuff. And then through the Zapiri, there's a whole other dimension of other kinds of spirits, some ancestral, some animal, and so on. Just an absolutely fascinating book, you know. And and uh, uh, and for uh, not everybody in the tribe, but for the shamans in the tribe, uh, you know, the experience of the Zapiri is completely a real thing, an everyday reality. And because they're so influential, shamans are... I mean, many, many of the men in the tribe, you know, take this mm-hmm. snuff and share this reality. I highly recommend it. It's really, really, very interesting. Uh, and for me, it uh, it sort of answers the question, you know, uh, one of the questions anyway, that came up in the conference. One of the things I was wondering is, you know, and I think I asked in, in the in the our talk of, you know, it doesn't matter if the spirits are real or not. What matters is the information. Is the information useful or valid? Mm-hmm. And this this book, reading this book, shows that at least in this culture, for these people, the information is valid. Mm-hmm. It's what they view, their whole world view is seen through this lens. And, uh, you know, the Zapiri world is as real as the Amazonian uh, environment that they inhabit. So highly recommended. It's a long read. It's not an easy read, but it's worth it if you're interested. Very good. I'll take a look at it. So it was this fascination that DMT that led us to go to South America in search of this orally active form of DMT. And the reason we were interested in that is because one thing about DMT, many things about DMT, but one thing about it, when you smoke it, which is how it has to be taken, because it's not orally active, they smoke the free base, literally in a, in a crack pipe, you get an overwhelming, astonishing experience, but it only lasts about 20 minutes, you know, and by the time you're there and sort of wondering, you know, what the hell is going on, you're already on the way down, you know, and so you don't have any time to spend in this in this dimension that we thought of it. So we heard about this, uh, this uh, paper that Schultes had published, uh, famous R.E. Schultes in the Botanical Museum Leaflet. And we were thinking if you could find an orally active form of DMT, it would last longer. It was simply that naive that we could, it would last longer and we could spend more time there and we could sort of look around and see what was going on. Because by the time you sort of, and you get deep into that space, it's already fading, you know, by the time you've overcome your initial astonishment. 
And so uh, we thought, well, yeah, we have to go investigate this thing. And this was 1970 and 1971, we went there. But a couple of, uh, we'd heard about it about a year before that. And and we decided, and, you know, at the time, the, the pharmacology of ayahuasca was not really understood, uh, the importance of the admixture plants, because ayahuasca is effectively an orally active form of DMT, right? It's it's potentiated by the beta carbolines, the monoamine oxidase inhibitors in the vine, one of the components, and that enables DMT to become orally active. We didn't know that. Nobody knew that at that time. There were people speculating, but it was not clear. But then this this article by Schultes came along, and it was like Varola as an orally active hallucinogen. And for us, it may as well have been written in neon flashing letters, you know, with a, aha, this is it. This is this is the secret, and we have to go after this thing. So we went to La Chirera. It was It was an obscure drug that was used by the Witoto people. And it was uh, Varola, made from Varola, which is a tree uh, widely used in the Amazon basin in the preparation of snuffs. And the sap of the tree is very high in DMT and often 5-methoxy-DMT in combination. So they prepare a snuff from this sap and they powder that down and they use it that way. And we may circle back on this because there's been interesting new information about about the these snuffs based on this book I've been reading. But I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So, so this was different because it was orally active, right? The other tribes used the snuff. The Witoto used this, this orally active paste that they make into little pills and they take it that way. And it was said to be very rapid and very reality disrupting and uh, and uh, way to get in touch with the little people, you know, as they called them. And, uh, and of course, Terence, at least, was very interested in the little people because of the whole machine elf thing, which I don't think everybody sees. But so we determined to go to South America, La Chirera, the uh, ancestral home of the Witotos, to look for this this drug. Well, when we got to La Chirera, uh we had been uh, cautioned on the way in. We had met an anthropologist on the way in who was studying the Witoto. We knew he was there. I mean, we talked to his colleagues in Bogota. We knew at some point our paths would cross, and they did, and he was there. And uh, he was at the village downriver from La Chirera at that time. And he and he was appalled, you know, when we showed up. I mean, you can't exactly send a text and say we're on the way. So these, you know, we were far more colorful than any of the Watoto people. We were full hippie mode, you know, long beards, bells, beads, the whole thing, you know, and, and it's like, who the hell are these people? And it, it, if it wasn't bad enough, then we said, well, hey, Doc, we're here to find uh, Ukuhe. What can you tell us about it? That really 
got him off and and he said uh you know he can't just go start talking to these people about ukuhe this is like you know their biggest shamanic secrets you know they'll probably kill you if you even mention it well he was a little bit he overstated it a little bit but we we said yeah okay we'll we'll be careful and uh we went on from that village and we went a four-day trek to the to La Chirera, o- overland, which was on a parallel river, uh, the Gara Parana. When we ended up at La Chirera, uh finally, it was a pretty rough slog, even though it was only four or five days, but, you know, we were very, we were hardly uh, experienced jungle travelers. But when we showed up at La Chirera, we thought, well, we'll just hang out and try to make contact discreetly and gently with the local folks and ask them about Ukuhe. But what we found was that about 200 acres around this mission village, it was a Capuchin mission, La Chirera, uh they'd cleared the forest and they brought in these Cebu cattle and the white humpback cattle. And uh, it was the rainy season. So out of every cow pie, were growing huge clusters of Psilocybe cubensis, you know, beautiful specimens of Psilocybe cubensis, the pan-tropical psilocybin mushroom. And uh, and we knew what they were. We had very little experience with them. In fact, only one very sort of cursory uh, encounter, which we, which we had at, at one of our stops on the way at another another town on, on the Putumayo on our way to La Chirera. And we found one or two, but it was dry and we didn't find any specimens, so it wasn't much of a much of an encounter. And so so when we got to La Chirera, we thought, oh, this is great. You know, we can just experience these. We can play around with these and until the real secret shows up. And we did think of this Ukuhe as the secret you know we sort of created this whole myth around around the idea well um and so we started eating the mushrooms on a very casual basis not really with the respect or the clarity that we should have well the mushrooms sort of quickly uh corrected that (laughs) in you know we started eating them and they made it clear that uh you know, they were the real secret and they were what we had come for. They were the source of the knowledge that we were seeking. And uh, we, so that's what got us sucked into the experiment at La Chirera. It It started, you know, sort of laying out the framework for an experiment, which was an experiment only in the, in the loosest sense. It wasn't an experiment. We thought of it that way, but not really. It should be called the ritual at La Chirera. But anyway, it's, it was a, uh, it was a, like a telepathic download of gnosis about what we could do with, uh, with these mushrooms, if we could, use them and there to imitate a, a sound inside uh, 
our heads. And when you imitated this sound, it was a whole elaborate thing about the molecular resonances that this would set up and affect the binding of the molecules into the neurons and would create a, a standing waveform, which would be a reflection of uh, basically some kind of uh, instantiation of the Akashic records, you know, uh, that was locked into our DNA, that was locked, in fact, into the DNA of all species. And we would have access to this. And it was a it was an experiment that would result in the creation of an artifact that would be a fusion of matter and mind. You would be able to see it and be it at the same time. And you could control it with your thought, right? And so this is what we set out to create with the experiment at La Chirera. Now, I have to say, you know, 50 years on, or, or more than 50 years on now, uh, this was bunk, you know? I mean, this was this was just a serious delusion. You know, there's no scientific validity to this. Uh, but we were we were utterly convinced that you know we were getting this gnosis, and if we got if we did what it said, we could create this object, and that would change everything. You know, it would essentially bring history to an end, and that didn't happen. We're still here, you know. But what did happen is that we had a what you might call a simultaneous break with reality with, you know, in psychology, as you know, there's, there's a phenomenon called the folie a the, the folly of two. And my brother and I experienced that in like complementary ways. We experienced about a two week extended alter state in which I basically disengaged from reality completely and my brother became hypervigilant and totally focused on reality and focused especially on me because I think, you know, he was concerned about looking after me. He didn't sleep for two weeks and uh, I didn't sleep. I, I don't know if I slept or not. I was not concerned with those sorts of things. I was cruising literally through the the cosmos. I, I I experienced this this state of mind where I thought I had blown up my consciousness to be co-continuous <clears throat> with the edges of the universe. You know, I was talk about being all one. I was all one with the galaxies, with with the with the uh, you know with the universe. And then slowly over this two weeks, I began to collapse back. And each 24 hours was another step in this process. So that, uh, you know, first it was the universe, and then it was the supercluster, then the local cluster, then the galaxy, and so on. And eventually, I condensed back into my my body. And... Uh, and my mind, you know, and I mean, severely shaken, obviously. Uh, but, uh, you know, in, in, in reflecting 
back on this, you know, I, I have thought and I'm even given talks about called, uh, you know, Experiment at La Cherera. Is it a psychotic break? Was it a shamanic initiation or was it an alien encounter? And I think there are elements of all of those things in what happened to us, you know, and uh, and it was an inflection point, certainly in our lives. It's like I was 20 when this happened. Terrence was 24. So we were just astonishingly young when this, these things went down and we were we were at that place where young men well probably young women too but young men often get to a place where they think they know everything and they actually know nothing but they don't know that they know nothing and so you know this was a very impactful uh experience and it kind of colored the rest of our lives you know my reaction to this after we did more or less get stuck back together and could operate in what people call consensus reality my reaction to that the process of integration was I wanted nothing to do with it in some ways I wanted I was happy to get my feet back on the ground and I sort of said, well, you know, I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to start studying hard science because we'd had this conversation about Terence was like, science will never explain this, you know? And I was saying, well, we're not scientists yet. We may have thought we were scientists, but we're not scientists. So we have to be able to do science before we can reject science. And so I said, I'm going to go back and study science. And that's what I did. And then that sort of was the beginning of my career in ethnobotany, ethnopharmacology, neuroscience, and all that. Terence uh, went a different direction. I mean, he was uh, more convinced at the time that we really had done something, that we had succeeded. What we had predicted didn't happen. But out of his ideations during this period, what came out initially was sort of the kernel of his ideas about time that, eventually he developed over decades into this idea of time wave zero, uh, which he claimed was, uh, you know, I mean, it was based on the, on the uh, I Ching, the mathematical sequence of the He claimed that it was a map of the ingression of novelty into space-time, into existence, you know, related very clearly uh, to the philosophies of Whitehead, although we didn't, we discovered Whitehead some years later, a couple of years later in our efforts to sort all this stuff out. And he constructed this very elaborate idea about the time wave and that this, this described the texture of time and the ingression of novelty and very much a sort of, I think, a reflection of the fact that we were both Catholic. You know, we grew up Catholic, and there was this uh, 
Catholicism and Christianity in general is basically an apocalyptic religion. I mean, built into the idea is there's going to be an end to time. And, you know, time will end and then it will be the last judgment or whatever. And and this was, you know, probably... So the time wave for Terence became like a years-long effort to nail down when is it going to end? Where do you put the end date of this time wave? And, uh, well, eventually he settled on December 21st, 2012 as the end date for various reasons, not least that that was the major uh, point in the in the Aztec calendar, in the Mayan calendar, the end of the 13th Bactun, which was misinterpreted as being the, the end of the whole thing. It's not really, but it was the end of a big cycle. And of course, so it was kind of, it became that, well, you know, if the singularity is going to happen, it's going to all collapse. It, it, it's a, an, an, a spiral, right? It's a fractal thing. And these cycles are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And finally, we'll reach a point where they're nanoseconds. And at that point, the singularity is going to collapse and uh, it'll all go away. You know, well, obviously that didn't happen, you know, and Terrence never lived to see that, uh, you know, the theory was was invalidated. But a lot of people took this time wave thing very seriously. I was always a skeptic, but a lot of people did take it seriously. And I, I think it's an interesting uh, mathematical construct uh, based on the I Ching. Uh, one thing it, it is for sure, at least you can interpret it this way, it's a very, it's a 13-month lunar calendar which might be a way of looking at the I Ching that nobody had really thought of. And if he had written about it in that respect, you know, a few sinologists would have taken note and nobody else would have noticed. But no, he made a career out of it. And, uh, and you know, in part... We argued a lot about the time wave... You know, and I was saying, you know, the problem with the time wave, there's two problems. Well, there's many problems with it, but two major problems that I see with the time wave is you, Terrence, you're the only one that can actually interpret it. You know, it's a reflection of your understanding of history. You know, that's a big problem. And uh, and the second major problem is you haven't defined any way to disprove it. You know, you're not interested in disproving it, but if you want to call it theory, you have to define what will invalidate it. And I'm coming at that now for kind of from my, uh, you know, my scientific bias understanding of what science is, which I had acquired after coming back and actually became a scientist. I, we, you know, half of my uh, undergraduate study was philosophy of science, a lot of Whitehead and, and other people, but 
one thing about science, one thing that's beautiful about science is you construct models, you construct hypotheses about phenomena, something, understanding of something, and then you really try hard to demolish that, to say, what does it not explain? You know, what is missing here? How does it need to be modified? Or maybe you just trash it and start over. And uh, and Terence wasn't interested, nor could he say what was uh, what would invalidate it. So, uh, so I've been talking a lot here. <laughs> oh, okay, it's a wonderful story. Actually, there's so many directions we we could go. I know I first learned about the time wave theory from another student of uh, psychedelics, Gene Houston who was something of a mentor of mine, and, and she was enthusiastic about it. And uh, one of the points she made was that in our present era, we are uh, something of a, a recapitulation of what happened to ancient Rome. You could say a, a fractal pattern of uh, the Roman Empire, and, and we could understand our, our present era by thinking about uh, the issues that the ancient Romans faced. Right. Right. Yeah, that was the whole idea about the construction of the time wave was that there are these many cycles that were that were nested. It was a fractal it was really a fractal thing. And the idea was that different eras in history resonate with each other in terms of, you know, so the four thousand eight hundred year cycle reflects the shorter yeah, I forget what the exact spans were, but you could see these same patterns in these different cycles. And it's a fascinating idea. Uh, but the problem is the only the 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 only person uh defining those correspondences was Terence. In some ways the time wave tells you more about Terence's understanding of history than it does about time. It doesn't describe time. It describes his understanding of history, which was not trivial. You know, he was very widespread. It was very complex. But it was about his own understanding of history. And and we used to, uh, you know, we used to have, I wouldn't call them arguments, but I call them uh, lively discussions about uh, what is novelty, you know, it's supposed to describe novelty. And I'm down with that theory. I, I believe Whitehead was correct that, you know, every day something happens that has never happened before in the history of the universe. You know, there is truly novel events. But what is novelty and how do you know it when you see it? You know, and Terence is, he was preoccupied or he was saying, well, events like, you know, the the first detonation of the atomic bomb or the first landing on the moon or these incredibly significant historical events, those are novel events. And so he, he was like a proponent of the eruptive theory of no, novelty. You know, it just happens. It just, it just explodes into history. But look at all the precursors that lead to that. You know, the uh, in the case of the atomic bomb, starting with you know maybe Einstein's theory and understanding the physics of it, and all the work that 
went before in developing nuclear reactions, understanding that. All of that was the groundwork that led eventually to the detonation of the first bomb, you know, in Alamogordo, Mexico in the 40s. But so where's the novelty? You know, and I, I was saying novelty doesn't erupt into history. Novelty leaks into history. And most of the truly novel events you don't even notice until they culminate in some kind of, you know, incredibly uh, attention-getting and and uh, and novel. But definitely, they have all these precursors uh, that uh, nobody pays attention to until you look back on it. You say, well. You know, if Einstein hadn't had these understandings, if Fermi and, uh, you know, Chicago Fieldhouse hadn't done the experiments that he'd done, all of these things, you know, that's where the novelty is. And uh, so we don't disagree, but the, uh, but the, but because Terrence, you know, his, looked at these looked at these events over vast spans of time and tried to make a sub supposition about where you place the end date you know and uh you know uh, there were many end dates that were postulated in the early days and they kept getting well, for one thing, more and more pushed out, which was comfortable in some ways because it means you're never going to reach that point. And and in that fact, in fact, that was true. I mean, he selected, uh, you know, December twenty first, twenty twelve, as the definitive end date that was going to either validate or invalidate the time wave. Well, of course, he didn't live to to see that, you know, and. Uh, uh, he had every expectation that he would, I'm sure, and it's a pity that he didn't in some ways. Uh, but it turned out to be kind of a non-event, you know, and uh, I mean, all the astronomical alignments and everything that the calendar talked about was took place and they were remarkable, And but you could have, you know, I mean, that's just, built into celestial mechanics and the, the Mayans were great astronomers and they were able to, uh, you know, construct this calendrical, uh, you know, calendrical system that, that uh, you know, diagrammed all those things. So, Well, one of the points that you made in your book and you seem to be hinting at at the moment is that sometimes the ideation that comes through the use of these various botanical psychoactive substances leads one into uh, experiences that are delusions. Uh, you yourself described an instance in, in which you, you felt, I think it was mushrooms, uh, led you into a paranoid state. You were with some friends and you thought they were about to murder you. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That's right. Uh, yeah, some people that I met when I was on a weekend vacation on the Big Island and we went up to actually to the place on the land where Terence and Cat eventually established botanical dimensions and we took mushrooms and I became utterly convinced at some point in the proceedings, not that it had done anything 
overt or anything. I just became convinced that these are that these people were, you know, cannibal sex killers and that they were going to, <laughs> you know, they were going to off me. Nothing like that happened, you know, and it was completely bunk. But I think that is, uh, and maybe with mushrooms, uh, they're a little more like this. Mushrooms are tricky. You know, you can't always trust them. And I, uh, I, I and, and people do get into these delusional places and and i i get emails all the time from people who have had uh you know revelatory experiences revelatory insights and you know and they're utterly convinced that uh you know they are the messiah or whatever or that you know and and uh i respond and i say well you know first of all stop taking any substance get your head back together, get your feet on the ground, look at this 48 hours later or two weeks afterwards and see if it holds up, you know, and I really think that's a good thing. I think the reality check is, is useful uh, because, you know, especially, I mean, I mean that, that mechanism, uh, would have saved us a lot of trouble at La Chirera if we'd had that in place. But, you know, we were not interested in that. We were, we were, you know, we were sucked down the rabbit hole or down the wormhole or whatever it was at that point. There was no, no stopping because, you know, we were uh, in, in communication with this apparently oracular intelligence whether it was the mushroom or something talking through the mushrooms, but it was definitely a telepathic uh, kind of encounter. And it was presenting all these just crazy ideas, which seemed quite acceptable. We didn't have a problem that, uh, you know, in order to carry out this experiment, we would have basically had to violate every law of physics known to science. That was the point, you know? So, yeah, you have to be careful. That's why it's good to, uh, you know, go into these experiences, if you, especially if you're looking for a therapeutic, uh, uh, you know, outcome. You need to prepare carefully for it. You need to have a good uh, guide or someone who does remain in reality to help you through it. And then the integration, the integration thing. And, you know, I think that, uh, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, now that uh, psychedelics are more popular and people are going to South America and taking ayahuasca, taking mushrooms and that sort of thing, I don't discourage that, but I think it, there's a danger of getting sort of into these uh, mindsets about the the psychedelics that aren't really true. You know, I mean, because there, there's a you know, there, there's there's of course all the indigenous beliefs, you know. And then that's often amalgamated with sort of idiosyncratic individual beliefs and new age, you know, uh, suppositions and all this. And I think the term is woo-woo. Uh, it's very possible to 
accept the woo-woo as just given. And people don't uh, examine their premises very, very carefully. And I think they should. I think that just because you're taking psychedelics and having these uh, experiences that do demolish your your default mode network, which is usually what's keeping you on track and keeping you focused. That's the danger of it. Just because you're doing that, you don't have an excuse to let your your skeptical antennas down. You know, you should keep those antennas highly tuned and well-functioning, <laughs> and it can save you a lot of grief, you know, I think. I mean, but then I'm saying this, and, you know, but... I'm saying it 50, 50 years or more on from from this experience. So I guess I've become just a boring old reductionist or something. Well, or maybe a wise person. You, you've learned from some of the mistakes you've made, perhaps. Not that they were all mistakes. I think the idea of becoming one with the cosmos is a wonderful experience if 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 one can learn how to return and i gather it took you a long time to to return but dennis let's talk about your present activities uh what what's your main focus these days some of the issues around are you know our co-optation if you will of these sacred traditions of these indigenous traditions you know there's now a whole ayahuasca tourist industry and uh you know there are companies that are you know have taken things like psilocybin that are moving forward on the very capitalist driven kind of big pharma track and I think there's a risk of uh, forgetting the origins of these things and that, and really the fact that indigenous people have been the stewards of this knowledge and the, and the, and the, and the stewards of the, the genetic resources and the habitats of these things for many thousands of years. And I think we're at risk of repeating that with the psychedelics, you know, and I, and I'm one of the guilty ones, you know, in some ways, I, I don't think that I have thought as clearly about this as I have within the last few years to think who's really benefiting from this and are the people that should benefit should be certainly major stakeholders, at least the indigenous communities, are they getting the benefit that they deserve? Or are we just repeating this legacy of biopiracy that started, well, really hundreds of years ago, certainly in the New World with the Columbian Exchange? You know, I mean, most of the food and medicinal plants that are now global have been basically ripped off from indigenous communities with very little effort to... Uh, you know, to to uh, repair that wrong, you know, and uh, and I think I mean, I I think we have to re-understand it. I think that you know, I, I don't think it 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 works to say, well, you know, we should just leave that alone. We I mean, we we took it from these people, and and we should not, because as a biologist, 
I think that these plants are in a co-evolutionary relationship with us. And I think that, you know, in some ways you could say, well, these are the common heritage of humanity and, and these medicines have the potential to heal millions of people potentially and heal the species and heal the planet, you know, in some ways, because the insights that you get from a lot of these, I, uh, very often people have a re-understanding of how out of harmony we are with nature, how out of touch with nature we are and with ourselves as a species. And, you know, the psychedelics open a window onto that, onto those realizations. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to internalize that and say, we're going to, act differently you know we're going to work with but i don't think it's it works to say well we'll just we made a mistake we'll leave these things alone in the first place that's not going to happen because a lot of this is driven by what's always driven these things corporate greed and the desire to make a profit and all that but and there is great potential what may be different this time than than before when we've taken plants or foods or medicines out of nature, these actually change the mind, you know? And so the people funding these corporations and funding all this, all this economic activity, they may take these things and then it may be in their face that, Hey, wait a minute, you need to re-understand what you're doing here and make a change. This is what I'm hoping. And uh, so I'm, uh, like I say, I'm evolving. I, I, it, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's not really my place to wag the finger at other people because, like I say, I have been guilty of this. On the other hand, you know, like when I organized retreats and, and invited people Obviously, the very fact that they're going to retreats means that they're privileged, you know, but I have also seen people come to these events with, uh, you know, and experience tremendous healing. You know, most people who go to these retreats, they, at least in my experience, they are not looking for thrills. You know, they have serious uh, spiritual or psychological issues that they're dealing with and for example trauma and that sort of thing and I've seen tremendous healing so what we have to do is try and find a way that the indigenous people are represented but we somehow can get this to the world in some ways so there are a number of organizations that are that are doing this and we're we're trying to align with them. I, I can just mention, you know, in passing, uh, two that are really doing very good work. One is ICERS, which is, stands for the International Center for Ethnobotanical Education and Research and Service. So ICERS.org and also the uh, Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund. And they are also working uh, very closely with ICERS and the two organizations are going to uh, 
you know, and, and they're looking at it from the standpoint of, uh, you know, like sort of different biocultural spheres, like Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund is very active in trying to protect peyote, uh, particularly because that's particularly threatened. But then these other things as too, uh, as well, like ayahuasca and, and uh, the Sonoran Desert toad and, uh, you know, other, other things. Some are more impacted than others. But these people are doing good work. And I, I think there is a, you know, so I, I look at, you know, the, sort of like the social and the cultural uh, context, but then as a biologist, I have to look at the 30,000 foot level too and think this is coevolution, you know, and coevolution is not pretty. Coevolution is sometimes pretty rough. Maybe this is one of the rough spots where we can get through it and uh, everyone can benefit, including uh, the people that have been the keepers of this wisdom for so long. Well, Dennis McKenna, this has been a, a very thought-provoking conversation. I'm very glad to be connected with you and to appreciate the depth of your experience from the educational point of view, the scientific point of view, and particularly from the experiential point of view. So uh, it's an honor for me to be able to share your life experience with the New Thinking Aloud audience. I hope we can have future conversations. Well, I would love to, Jeffrey. Yeah, there's obviously a lot more to say. Yeah. Uh, people can look at the McKenna Academy. And also, I want to mention a plug for the uh, this conference we did last May before, before the one you and I were at. And people should look at the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. Go to ESPD55.com. You can register. You can see everything that was presented uh, there and get an idea. You know what we've been what we've been up to and and get some education about some of these issues. You know, uh, so that would be my final plug. Is you know, it's open access. You just have to register with an email and a password, and you can look at everything. And for those that want to pursue it, that's a good place to start. We will list all of the uh, links in the description of this video, and in particular, the links to the McKenna Academy. So, uh, Dennis, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, it's taken a while, but I'm glad we did this finally, and I'm looking forward to the next time. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.